The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jezreb, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let, it, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will, will be shattered from, the, from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before the, ba- but before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers by the kids' zone sign. If this is your child's first time in church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thank you, Malia. We are beginning uh, our time in Isaiah. Uh, As we walk towards Christmas, as we walk towards Advent, celebrate Jesus' coming. And this year, we're looking at uh, Isaiah's words, an Old Testament book, and and it may seem uh, a bit dated, aged, uh, and that's because it's a different world. And so we will enter into that world that Isaiah is speaking into. But the reason uh, this matters is because the hope that it brings is pointed. That Isaiah is speaking into the life of God's people in the Old Testament at the worst of times. With highlights and notes and deep meaning of hope. Deep meaning of the promise and seeds of the Savior. And so this morning, as we look at Isaiah 7, we'll look at a few things. Uh, First, the storm. 
Second, the ask. And then third, the promise. Uh, The storm, the ask, and the promise. And as we look at Isaiah 7, would you join me as we pray and study God's word together? Lord, we uh, come to you as a people who uh, can look at this, this old words, ancient words, and feel so confused. It tells a story, but, but what does it have to do with us? And we look at our lives now, and it's easy, Lord, to feel confused. That we look at it and think, how could God even be a part of it? So this very day, would you, because your word is true, and because your word speaks and gives clarity, not confusion, and hope, not despair, give us that very thing. We beg it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Or would you forgive the sins of the one who brings your word, for they are many. We pray in your name. So first, the storm. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet, and he's been tasked to go and tell God's people um, warnings and hope. He's to, to have them live in the gray area that they are. In Isaiah 6, chapter 6, he's commissioned by God to go and do this work. And then it's right here is chapter 7. It's day one on the job for Isaiah. And what is day one like? What's his first kind of initiatives like? Well, he's a prophet and he's told to go. And prophets in the Old Testament, it can feel like it's that so raven. Like you look in the future and you see what's going to happen and you just say it. And it's that. It is. This will happen, people of Israel. Judgment will come. Hope will come. But also it's, it's a little bit uh, another option too, which is forthtelling. They don't just foretell, they forthtell as well. That is, this will happen, people of God, if you don't repent. So as he foretells and as he forthtells, he goes to a people who are in a very particular situation. Isaiah has been commissioned to speak to God's people. And this time there's been a split in God's people. And 10 tribes of Israel, 10 of the 12, have gone and broken away to the north to create Israel, this nation. And two have stayed in the south to create Judah. So Israel and Judah, separate. In this particular situation, uh, Judah is up against Israel and Syria. Because Israel, the ten tribes to the north, has joined together with Syria, the, the, the nation above them, their enemy, to take care of themselves. And together, Israel and Syria are coming down to take Judah and usurp power and put a puppet on the throne, essentially. And it's really just like a Yellowstone episode. What happens here, right before us, is a strained familial relationship joining forces with an enemy to protect themselves against everyone's common enemy. It's all about self-protection. And so together, Israel and Syria come down to Judah to threaten it and take it over. And even in the first verse, it says how God has set his heart and determined that he will protect his people. That threats come up and God says it's not going to happen. He's going to protect his people from this attack. 
And even though they're not taken over, this king of little Judah, Ahaz, King Ahaz looks at this attack and he's terrified. That he sees the people coming. He sees the nations coming to the north and he's petrified. It says in verse 2, Uh, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, the king, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. With the enemy coming, the king and his people shook like a tree in a storm. The storm is around them, encircling them. And it says their heart, the core of their being is shaken because of what they see and because of what's after them. And in the weather world, a storm isn't just random. It doesn't just pop up. It's when two forces collide and and chaos and disorder reign on the things that are around it. This week, Mitch Grothouse and I, Uh, stepped outside on Tuesday, I think it was, uh, to watch this storm of rain roll in. It was raining uh, down and sideways, every kind of way. And 6-9, Mitch Grothouse said to me, he said, it makes me feel so small as he looks at the rain come down and the storm encircle. The reality of a storm is that it makes us feel small that it makes you feel minute, that it makes you feel powerless and in circles. That's exactly how Ahaz felt when he looked and his heart felt like a tree waving and being pushed like the wind in a storm. And if you're honest in your life, and even later on this morning together, we'll go through something in which it feels like two Things are colliding and creating chaos and creating something in us that makes us feel like disorder is winning the day and makes us feel like a lack of control and we're up against too much. And when that happens, it's natural to be terrified and confused and anxious and worried and wondering, is God still the one writing the story? Storms beg a question. Is God still writing uh, the story? And we don't have the mind of God, but it feels like the plans of God are frustrated. And it's in the place of the storm where forces collide and chaos ensues and disorder reigns and comes down and encircles where we know God has not given up on us. And I'm only able to say that because Isaiah 7 still goes forward, and the story doesn't stop here. Ahaz and the people are terrified to the heart because of the storm around them. But the story moves on to this second idea, the ask. The ask. There's a two-volume book in the Old Testament called Chronicles, and it talks about God's people and the kings that reign in God's kingdom. And it talks about all these different kings and how they're good and bad and good and bad. And Ahaz, this king that we see this morning, that Isaiah goes to, we we see depictions of him. And in 2 Chronicles 28, it says this about King Ahaz in this historical book. That Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. 
Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his children in the fire. Engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense at high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. This is his baseball card. And on the back of every baseball card is a biography and statistics. And here we see his biography and statistics show he is a wicked king. He's an idolatrous king. And in other places, we see that he's burned his own son uh, to the god of Malak. He's put up horses in Jerusalem and the temple, and he, the streets of Jerusalem run with blood because of the way he has killed the vulnerable and innocent. Now, why do we say all of that? Why would him, King Ahaz, leader of Judah, the one who is a lineage of David, why would he do that? And it's because the thing that he's giving something to, he feels like he has promised more in return. He's promised more than what he gives. And that's the mirage of idolatry. That you look at something and you think, if I give you this, you'll give me more back. There's an exchange where I win. But the only outcome is the fact that you're only asked for more. And that's the mania of idolatry. Andy Crouch uh, put it this way. All idols begin by offering great things for very small, for a very small price. All idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands, while initially, which initially seemed so reasonable for worship and sacrifice. In the end, they can fail completely, even as they make categorical demands. In the memorable phrase of the psychiatrist Jeffrey Satinover, idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they, they demand everything and give nothing. Like Ahaz, we listen to the loud idols in our lives and in our stories and attach our hearts because we're promised something. And we think we'll get it and we'll do whatever that idol asks. We'll do whatever it asks of us. And for us, whether it's the idol of experience or accomplishment or comfort, control, manipulation, stimulation, power, pleasure, on and on, no matter what it is in our story. God asks something of us. In light of our our idolatry, in light of Ahaz's idolatry, God asks something of us, and it's not to perform or to accomplish or to come groveling back to him. God asks us to be still. To go from the frantic world of idolatry, to go to the frantic demands of idols, and to come to him and do nothing but this, be still. Our God is a God of stillness. And God tells Isaiah to say this to King Ahaz. 
Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps, Israel and Syria. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remilia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remilia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves. And let us set up son, uh, the son of Tabal as king in the midst of it. God is asking Ahaz and the people of Judah to abandon the economy of idolatry for the sake of what he offers. And what he offers is stillness, quietness. The very thing that God asks of Ahaz is what he asks of us. And it's stop and to cease from trying to be the God that he is. And he can ask this of us because he knows us. And he also can ask us uh, th- this thing to be still because he knows evil better than we know it. And he knows evil better than evil knows it. In the text it says, hey, just so you know, you can cease and be still because the things that you're so afraid of, that storm and rain, uh, disorder and chaos, I know what they're thinking. I'm so many steps ahead. They would want to say, hey, let's go take over Judah and let's put a puppet on the throne. God knows you to the point where he says, you can be still. And God knows evil to the point in which he says, I'm better than it and I will vanquish it. And all that he asks of us is this, active nothingness. God asks his people to be still, which is active nothingness. Active because it requires to put complete faith in the fact that God is writing the story and he is in control. And nothingness because it absolutely transfers the power of conquest from our hands to God. Active nothingness. So friends, this day in your life, where is God asking you to live a posture of active nothingness? Actively trusting he's in control and doing nothing to contribute because he is the one that will vanquish the storm around us. And maybe to answer that question, you should answer another question. Where are the places in your life that are so hard to let go of? And open up your hands. And we don't like being still. We don't like doing active nothingness. <laughs> because it makes us sit with the reality inside of us. But the truth is, when we're faced with that reality, we come to know the truth of the gospel, and it's this. As one pastor said it, God is attracted to weakness and need and honesty. He is repelled by our self-assured pride. Weakness, need, and honesty. And all he's asking of us is to trade the idolatry we have for the sake of the stilling nature of faith that he offers. There's a storm around Ahaz. God asks him, trade your idolatry, your mania, this mirage you're chasing for my stillness. But then there's, there's this last idea of a promise. And that's, that's what Christmas is, is a promise. The king is going to come. And for us, in, in this point of history, the king has come. Isaiah tells Ahaz that God has told him, Ahaz, ask God of anything. 
Ask God anything to give you a sign, and he will do it. It can be a sign as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol. What he's saying is, uh, Ahaz, you can ask whatever to show you God is legit. God actually is true to his word. Here is a blank check to fill out, and God will cash it. And Ahaz looks at that offer to show that his God actually is the real God, and he says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. No, I'm okay. And God's response to him and his offer to being deferred and rejected is not a lightning bolt and it's not a shameful rant. His response is a promised sign. And it's this, it's the hope of nearness. In verses 15 to 17, at the very end of this section, uh, we hear that um, the nation of uh, Israel and, and the nation of Syria, and the things that are ensuing the fear and, and creating fear in King Ahaz's heart and the people's hearts are going to be history. And they can say that. Isaiah can say that in verses 15, 16, and 17 because verse 14 is true. And in verse 14, it says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. God's promised sign changes everything. And it's this. It's that a young girl is going to give birth, a virgin. Not of prestige and upper echelon, but, but, but a, a tiny little girl into a stable with nothing. And this person that she gives birth to will eat curds and honey, which is, Steve Perkins reminded me of this, it's poor man's food. It's the nutrition of the impoverished. And this person will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Not God against us, not God making his mind up about us, but God with us. And just like Ahaz, God doesn't give us nothing even as we reject his offer with a blank check. But he gives us exactly what we need most. He's more committed to us than the things that we offer or ask for or say yes to. But he's going to give us a sign. And it's the thing that we need most deeply in our lives. And it's the fact that God is with us. And I'll end here. That the great 1800s Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, when looking at Isaiah 7, when seeing the ramifications of it, the thought of Emmanuel, he said this. Emmanuel, it's wisdom's mystery. God with us. Sages look at it and wonder. Angels desire to see it. The plumb line of reason cannot reach halfway into its depths. The eagle wing of science cannot fly so high, and the piercing eye of the vulture of research cannot see it. God with us. It tells terror. 
Satan trembles at the sound of it, and his legions fly apace, and the black-winged dragon of the pit quails before it. Let Satan come to you suddenly, and do, and do you but whisper that word, God with us, he falls, he falls back, confounded and confused. Satan trembles when he hears that name, God with us. It's the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go into the foreign lands? How could the martyrs stand at the stake? How could the, conf- How could the confessor own his master? How could men labor if one word were taken away? God with us. Tis the sufferer's comfort. Tis the balm of his woe. Tis the alleviation of his misery. Tis the sleep which God gives to his beloved. Tis their rest after exertion and toil. Ah, and to finish, God with us. Tis eternity's sonnet. Tis heaven's hallelujah. Tis the shout of the glorified. Tis the song of the redeemed. Tis the chorus of angels. Tis the everlasting oratorio of the great orchestra of the sky. God with us. The soothing solution for every human heart in all of human history is not the thing in which we ask for. The soothing solution for every human heart, including yours, and all of human history and for a church like ours is the fact that God has promised us a sign, and it's this, it's that God is with us. Whatever may come, God is with us. Let's pray. Lord, the fog is among us, it so seems. And yet light makes the fog lift. Because the king has come in Advent and we long for his second Advent and his second coming, bring light in due time in your time. And as we wait for that light to lift the fog in our own lives, remind us of the truth that no thing can take away the fact that God is with us. We pray this in your name, Emmanuel. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Fact that God is with us. We pray this in your name, Emmanuel. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.